This is Overdrive Radio. I'm Todd Dills, and in this edition of the podcast, you'll hear part two of audio segments from the truckstop.com panel that opened the Truckstop user conference last week. The bevy of insights into the economy and more. Before we get there, I'd like to highlight a counterpoint from an owner op to those who protest the rise of paid reservations at some truck stop chains, which we've been covering in our ELDs up the ante on parking series this week, on just how the ELD mandate has changed parking dynamics of the nation over. The note came in from Swift leased owner operator Carolyn Carroll, who called the ability to reserve spaces a godsend to her operation, going back to TA Petro's introduction of its reserve it system in the years before mandated ELDs were in play. And she wrote, For a single female driver to walk through the parking lot in the middle of the night because I either need the restroom or am leaving early, sometimes a little beyond comfortable for her. Quote, Now with the reserved parking, she said, I am up front by the busy fuel aisles and no longer worry about my safety. Now that Flying J and Pilot have reserved parking too, I am not worrying about where I will find a parking space. Carol trains other female solo drivers too. Tries to, quote, stress the importance of safety out on the road. Parking reservations now allow her to, quote, drive until late in the night, stress-free, knowing I have a parking space waiting for me. This is a good thing. I do not want to be stressed behind the wheel of my truck. And while she's well aware, there are plenty of drivers who resent the imposition of paid reserve spaces at some stops. For me, she's, she says, it has been a godsend. We'll hear more from Carol a couple podcasts down the line. Meantime, here's a couple other quick hits on a less direct premium being put on get-in-where-you-fit-in spots in Georgia and North Carolina and no doubt other locales. Regular over at Overdrive readers will recall my own coverage of the Gastonia, North Carolina booting trap at U.S. 321 and I-85. Long-haul Paul Marhofer's recent story on growing booting activity in the Atlanta area. Two haulers who called into the Overdrive Radio podcast line experienced similar private parking enforcement treatment in each area. I was reading about the predatory towing practices, and the exact same thing happened to me in the Charlotte metropolitan area. Also, it happened around Smyrna, Georgia, where I was in the truck fleet, and my truck was booted, and then the guy woke me up. The lights were on, the truck was running, and he knew I was in there, he could have tapped on the glass and told me to move the truck. There were no signs visible that you could read, and the truck had been parked there all day. He waited until 3 o'clock in the morning to put the boot on the truck, then woke me up and told me he would take me to the ATM and pay him $500 to take the boot off. And also in Charlotte, uh, my truck was towed once upon a time in a lot. It cost over $2,000, and after I came back to investigate the lot, there were signs put up that said no truck parking so new that they still had the price sticker on them and the UPC code. Every other sign in the whole area that had been up for a while it was rusted and dirty and everything, but these were brand new, so they were actually placed after my truck was towed. Yes, my name is James Smith, and I live in Jackson, Georgia, and I, had, I pulled into the Walmart uh, parking lot in Perry, Georgia, right off Interstate 75 and Highway 341, exit 130, exit 135, uh, exit 136, exit 136 in early April, and I went to the Kentucky Fried Chicken to get something to eat, and I walked, I was gone about 20 minutes, and I walked back, I mean, I just, it's all in the same lot, and I walked back to my truck, and the truck 
both tires, the front and the rear, was booted. And it cost me $500 to get out of there for no reason except I pulled in there to get something to eat. And uh, I didn't think it was quite right. I called Walmart. They wouldn't do anything about it. And the other guy, the, the guy who booted the tire said he couldn't do anything about it. He just called me five. It was a very expensive Kentucky Fried Chicken meal. Y'all have a nice day. Yes, be wary at that Perry, Georgia, Walmart location, no doubt. Likewise, says owner-operator Martin Hill, the Walmart in Aurora, Colorado, which might be the company's latest location to bite the dust when it comes to truck friendly parking policies. It, quote, it was always a great place to stop because Walmart kindly provided a special parking lot for just for the big rigs, which is rare, Hill says. However, last week on a run through the area, Hill found what he calls, quote, a disaster. The truck parking lot is now closed and all blocked off so no trucks can enter. Thus, there were trucks everywhere who had arrived and were trying to fit in the car parking lot. I asked the assistant manager, Colin, what happened, and he told me that while they were happy to have truckers' business, Unfortunately, the truck parking lot was regularly filled with trash, among other disturbances. In addition to, as the manager put it, Hill says, quote, the world's oldest profession. The manager added that from here on out, trucks parked in their lot will have their plate number recorded. The second time parked there, they could face fines. Be warned. As Hill put it, quote, it's a shame some ruined it for the many truckers who respect private property. Now back to the panel you heard a good bit from last week, featuring Stiefel's John Larkin, Truckstop.com Chief Economist Noel Perry, and Tucker Company Worldwide Broker Jeff Tucker. The segment we'll hear from today is actually from the first half or so of the discussion, which in many ways centered on forces impacting the economy, bread and butter at least of the two economists on the panel. They offered some predictions of how long demand conditions would continue well for trucking, how long the partially ELD-related bump in rates would roll forward. You'll hear brokers particularly be happy about that. Uh, you know, if you're in negotiation with them, keep that in mind when uh, when, uh, when trying to get a little bit more out of the rate. Other topics covered include the outlook on diesel prices, the oil and gas-related hauling sector in a variety of areas, and much more. And as I noted last week, keep in mind the panelists are speaking, again, like I said, to a room full of brokers. But much of the discussion pertains equally directly to small fleets and independents. It started with a question from Truckstop.com's Bill Vitti about fundamental economic conditions and outlook for the currently generally favorable conditions to continue. Here's Vitti, followed by John Larkin. Hey, so uh, let's jump in and uh, want to talk about there's so much going on in the economy right now and within our industry. And as Brent mentioned it, we all talk about it here. It's an amazing time in, in the space and most of you are having record years. And the question is, well, what's on the outlook, what's on the horizon here for the, for the balance of 2018 and then looking forward to 2019 and maybe beyond. So uh, the format of this panel will we'll give each panelist an opportunity to answer uh, the question and spend two to five minutes on the topic. And then at the end of the session, uh, hopefully there will be a few minutes for some question and answer as well. Right. So John, if you can start with your thoughts on this. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, the economy is very healthy uh, right now and uh, you know all sectors uh, seem to be doing extremely well. There are some parts uh, geographically that are doing better than others. I think uh, you're sitting in the middle of one of the geographical centroids of growth um, that's taking place in the country. Nashville would be another, Reno would be another, uh, Atlanta is doing very well, parts of Florida really booming, Rust Belt uh, struggling a little bit, although 
certain cities uh, up in the north are, are doing quite well. Boston, um, more or less booming. Columbus uh, booming. And I'm not sure the economy has really had the benefit of anything other than sustained low interest rates uh, for the past few years, uh, which really makes capital very inexpensive and generally uh, available. There's a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines, um, a lot of venture capitalists putting money to work, a lot of private equity firms putting money to work. Some companies are going public. Uh, we have uh, U.S. Express going public here. Uh, shortly uh, for the second time, uh, which is always uh, fun. But uh, we also, at the end of last year, had a new tax bill uh, that was was passed uh, by Congress, and uh, it's a very business-friendly uh, tax bill. Uh, it allows for repatriation of foreign profits at a much lower rate than was previously the case. It allows you to depreciate assets in uh, the first year on your tax books, uh, even if that asset is a used asset. Uh, what, what a really uh, amazing uh, benefit. Um, and <clears throat> the corporate tax rate has been taken down to 21%. And uh, that, that became effective at the beginning of the year. And I think we're just now beginning to, to experience the increase in investment and hiring that has resulted that. And, and therein lies kind of the issue uh, because right now we're operating close to full employment and uh, the folks at the Fed who had provided all this easy money the last few years are beginning to ratchet up interest rates and uh, almost always when interest rates uh, ratchet up people begin to become a little more cautious about borrowing money, investing, and hiring and uh, oftentimes it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So for the time being, things look great. Hopefully, the Fed can walk a tightrope and not overcompensate here. Um, and we can be in a period of sustained uh, economic growth for the next couple of years. Truckstop.com Chief Economist Noel Perry is the voice that follows here. I'd like to, have to build on what John just said. Um, the economy not move like this. Here, Noel Perry raised an arm and described a smooth arc on a graph moving left to right. Uh, it has an underlying trend that we study and try to help people understand in general what's going to happen two or three years from now. It, it moves like this. Here, Perry raised the arm and traced out a very jagged up and down and up and down pattern. And the thing that you have to remember in 2018 uh, is. Uh, and I'll just use the Eagles as an example. Uh, the Eagles did this last year, and in Philadelphia, I, I hope it goes like that. Well, it ain't. It's going to go like this, right? And the same thing goes for the, uh, the economy, and especially for trucking, which has, which has benefited from the single most favorable environment in our lifetimes. Yes, celebrate the fact that you've been able to take advantage of those good things, but do not declare victory. And do not assume that it was you who made your company make record profits this year. Now, certainly your work has contributed to the fact that your companies have taken advantage of these wonderful circumstances, as I have. But it ain't sustainable. And the only question is, how long are we going to have this wonderful ride? How many more pieces of cake do we get to eat 
before we go back to eating grapefruit. And it ain't as long as you hope. So uh, uh, keep your eye on the horizon as well as celebrating what we've had. Broker Jeff Tucker then followed. Yeah, I think those are good. I think those are good points. When we saw, uh, we saw, we wrote about. I think it's documented uh, uh, a lot of places. We saw and, and wrote about the uh, what was going to happen this year with ELDs. We didn't see the hurricanes for sure, but for the last two and a half years, we were changing our company uh, to be more carrier centric. Okay. So uh, one of the books that I was encouraged to read when I uh, just joined the business was uh, The Customer Comes Second. And it was uh, by um, Hal Rosenbluth of a, a company, Rosenbluth Travel, Philadelphia, uh, travel agency that grew to a huge size before they sold. And um, if you hire good people and, and you treat them well, they will take care of the customer. And we focused on that. We said, you know what, uh, with what was likely coming, the capacity shortage, we, we needed to be more carrier-centric. And we changed, over a period of the last two and a half years, we changed, anticipating the ELD deadline mandate, to be more carrier-centric. And, and uh, you know, so I encourage you to, to heed Noel's advice, his warning, to look forward. Enjoy the moment. I have a hard time enjoying the moment. I, well, I'm enjoying the moment, but I have a hard time because I know that we're in now, I think, the second longest recovery we've ever been in, in this country. And I remember my first year owning the business, my first day was January 1st of 2004. Does anyone remember what happened in January of 2004? Similar to what just happened, is that new hours of service. Right? And looking back, we lost between 3.5% uh, of capacity or so. Uh, that was my experience, uh, first year running the business. Uh, now, that, uh, the, the peak capacity issue, excuse me, uh, my chair's moving here. The capacity issue um, revealed itself in the third quarter of 03 with a tax credit. But from that point on until the hurricanes in 05, we did not look back, and it felt just like this. Problem is, for all of us, this environment, this environment is a lot tighter for reasons John mentioned with regard to employment. Uh, again, we're in the second longest recovery ever. Then we were just kind of coming out of uh, a downturn, a, a slow time. We are tight. A storm messes us up. So. Point is, uh, we're in a really enjoyable moment, I suppose, if you're in transportation, but you've got to be thinking, what's next? How do I protect what I have now? And you know, hopefully uh, the tools that we'll learn about here today and, and, and tomorrow will help us uh, as we begin to shape our futures. Uh, great, yeah, fantastic uh, input. Uh, so quick follow-up question, thinking of capacity is extremely tight. Uh, Rates are off the charts. Margins are great in spot market, especially. So, just crystal ball outlook. When does that change? When do you start seeing the, uh, the shift there? Well, I'll give you some historical perspective uh, in uh, 
we do we don't have spot market data from oh four uh, mainly because somebody at truck stop erased the file and that was the only source back in that in that era uh, but we do have contract data from that time and we do have a capacity utilization data and what we know is that the underlying pressure for the market tightness uh, was over by the end of '04, but contract rates didn't start to soften until the end of '05. So, uh, and by my analysis, the underlying pressures for this upturn will be definitely softer by the end of the year, and will and will be back to normal at, at best a year from now. So the only question is, what's the lag between that market? pressure and the response that all of us make to it. Historically, it was a long time. So that would say that all of 18 and half of 19 at least were good years for everybody. Um, my advice to you is don't bet on it. Yeah, just uh, a few thoughts. Um, as you go around the country and talk to different uh, business folks involved, not only in trucking or brokerage or logistics in general, <clears throat> but, but folks that are involved in a broader segment of the economy, construction, mining, warehouse operations, uh, and so forth, the, the universal comment is that we can't find good people. All right. Uh, by the same token, uh, you have this uh, uh, educated elite group that is saying, what are we going to do with all these people that will be put out of a job as a result of automation. And those two commentaries are, are sort of at, at loggerheads with one another. And it appears to me that the reality is you, you can't automate fast enough to outrun the labor shortage, at least over the near to medium term. So all this automation uh, is really great. Uh, for America, and finally, we're seeing it come into the transportation industry. Certainly, a lot of innovation at truckstop.com. Um, I'm going from here to the, the Blockchain and Transport Alliance uh, Forum in Atlanta. Uh, it turns out there's like 10 different uh, relevant events this week. Mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not, across America, it's, it's really amazing how many people are focused on bringing technology into the industry finally. Uh, and, and I think that the industry is going to be different 10 years from now uh, than we see it today as a result. But back to the capacity shortage, uh, my, my sense of it is that the over-the-road trucking component and the last-mile delivery component of the overall supply chain will be the last things automated uh, that a lot of administrative functions will be automated, a lot of the uh, Price discovery will be automated, contract administration uh, automated, etc. Uh, within the warehouse and within the fulfillment center, a lot of the shipment handling systems will be automated. Intermodal yards may be more automated, ports may be more automated. But on the North Dallas toll road, for those of you that have driven it, it's more like the North Dallas Speedway. Uh, I've never seen a policeman out there enforcing the speed limit, and you'll see people going 100 miles an hour all the way down to 40 miles an hour, very unsafe combination. And how do you how do you take an 80,000 pound gross vehicle weight vehicle 
and inject it into that environment uh, with a lot of stop and go and irrational behavior and, and be safe. Um, maybe that's possible given the technology, but getting the highway safety lobbyists convinced of that is, is a, a big challenge. I also think you're going to get a lot of opposition from the railroad industry, which is very well financed and very well organized. And organized labor is going to be generally opposed to um, uh, autonomous truck operations. So for the time being, given the shortage of labor, uh, even with all of the dramatic um, pay increases that have taken place here recently, <coughs> it really does look like it could be tight longer uh, than it has been in past cycles. Uh, the jury is out on that, but we'll find out over the next couple of years. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any easy solution. Even the railroads are offering uh, $25,000 sign-on bonuses for people to work uh, um, on train crews. And in the old days, back when Noel and I used to work together at CSX, down in uh, Jacksonville, uh, there was no shortage of, of labor because those jobs were so highly paid and the benefits were so terrific. But now everybody's struggling. And um, it's, it's not just pulling people out of other industries because those industries are also suffering with, with a labor shortage. So I think we could have an extended period of uh, supply-demand tightness. Don't think autonomous trucks are the answer, near term at least, maybe medium and long term. And uh, that could create an extended period of uh, positive uh, dynamics for the whole industry. Uh, at the same time, I think Noel's counsel is very wise uh, that you should always be thinking in terms of scenarios and you know, what happens if we have a dislocation and things go south quickly. How do I react to that? Uh, that, that's been uh, a constant theme from the Noel for a long time, and uh, I think everyone needs to be cognizant of, of that council. Hey, so uh, next topic is, it really ties to the economic outlook, is the uh, political landscape. There's a lot going on there. Um, certainly with the election coming up, we have a lot of bills and regulations that are uh, put in place that are being proposed. So what's the impact of that uh, looking next year, a few years out, and the impact of Noel, if you want to start with that one? I'll take a stab at it uh, without making any comments on who wins or, or loses. Uh, uh, it's almost, it's highly unlikely that anything significant will come out of Washington in, a, in an election year. Uh, and so uh, uh, no infrastructure bill, for instance, uh, no radical changes in regulation. Well, we also know that the uh, Trump administration, uh, a, a college classmate of mine, um, back in the old days at Pennsylvania. At any rate, um, they're unlikely to change uh, trucking regulation or tighten it uh, over the next, uh, we still have uh, three years, or almost three years in his administration. So, um, um, what you will get is a lot of distraction on TV and not a lot happening in our world from politics. Uh, un unless there is some kind of a phenomenal, unplanned international incident that is 
remotely possible given the inflammatory style that our president has. But otherwise, it's uh, it's 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 noise. And Jeff, I know you're extremely active with trying to steer government and uh, help our industry here. So, what are your thoughts? Sure. I, I think uh, it, uh, during my time, I'm still on the board of TIA, but I'm, I've got a, a year left uh, as past chair. Uh, but during my 11 years now on the board, I um, I saw us go from not having a pack to having a pack and getting uh, not having staff on the hill to having a great talent on the hill, um, some of the best talent on the hill in transportation. Uh, so a, a lot has changed. During the last eight years, during the Obama administration, uh, there was a very active FMCSA. Um, in fact, there was a lot of the, a lot of the drive at FMCSA uh, came from uh, two um, career, not political appointees, but career employees with extreme power. And uh, the administration gave them uh, cover to do almost anything that they wanted. I served on the CSA subcommittee for the Motor Carrier Safety um, Mixed Act, Motor Carrier Safety Advisory Committee, I believe. Boy, how quickly we forget. Um, but that was a nightmare, and that's where I lost my hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your beard, I see. It was, yeah. Well, no, I, I, I got lost in the woods trying to find some time, like Paris recommended. <laughs> Luckily, I was rescued just in time to get here. Um, but um, so, so I was in, I was in a room with FMCSA staff, and I would ask them, you know, so. Show this carrier that you're showing me five basic scores. Could you tell me which should I or shouldn't I use this carrier? And the, the guy in command said, "No, I can't tell you that." So why can't you? Well, you know, there's other data that we're going to look at to see if the carrier, the carrier, safe or not. So okay, well, what's that other data? Is it something I can see? Well, no. <laughs> so I said, "Well, that's why we can't use this data." And they just you know. so they would shove this stuff down your throat. So. To the question, um, we will not be seeing any more of that for at least the next two and a half years. And uh, that provides just maybe a sense of relief and we can work on our businesses. I spent a lot of time in, in, in Washington and on these phone calls and away from the business during those years. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's we can focus on the business. Um, I don't anticipate, now the ELD mandate was that was a law that was going to happen. That would have had to have another law to pull it away, um, which is why it, it happened during the Trump administration. Um, but I don't expect anything <coughs> significant from a regulatory or, or, or a legislative. Uh, there is one thing I will tell you, and I'd love anyone's help and encouragement on this with your uh, senators, is uh, there is a national hiring standard that was passed by the House um, TIA has been working on this. I've been working on this since 2004. TIA's staff, talented staff, just got that bill passed in the House, and now it's on to the Senate. That'll allow us some identification for what we can or can't hire from a motor carrier standpoint, and will help us as we defend ourselves against frivolous lawsuits. So I encourage you, please, to, to learn about that and see me afterward, and, and call your senators. Um, we need that bill passed. And that bill will pass. It's just a question of will our bill 
it's, it's going through the FAA uh, bill that will pass this year. It's a question of will this bill be attached to it or not. What Tucker's talking about there is a standards provision measure that essentially provides protection for parties who would contract with motor carriers to move freight, whether shippers or brokers. It would protect brokers and shippers from liability as long as they would verify any carrier they contract with holds proper insurance, is registered properly with USDOT, and does not have an, quote, unsatisfactory safety rate. John Larkin followed Tucker's comments with more on the political atmosphere in Washington and how it relates to trucking and transportation more broadly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think never before has Washington been so polarized. Uh, you know, if Donald Trump says the sky is blue, Chuck Schumer says it's gray, <laughs> and, and vice versa, uh, you know, there, there seems to be no opinions developed on the basis of fact. It's all political positioning. And, um, you know, most Americans are smart enough to filter uh, through all that nonsense. Uh, but some rely on the, the mainstream media for their information and, and don't get much filtering, uh, which is a little bit annoying and, and frustrating. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the tax bill getting done was really just a major uh, breakthrough. Uh, the Trump administration has already rolled back 800 plus uh, regulations. Uh, they have shelved uh, a bunch of others. Do you remember all the talk about the sleep apnea testing? That's essentially been uh, shelved. The uh, speed limiter uh, regulation has essentially been shelved. There was a whole litany of regulations that would have sat on top of the ELD mandate to take even more capacity out, which is probably the last thing in the world we need right now as a country and as an industry. Uh, but, but there is one thing that uh, might help, and uh, the trucking industry, unfortunately, is not really coordinated on, on what the right answer is here. But if you could uh, make each of your terrific professional truck drivers more productive by changing the size of weight laws, that may be one way to solve this problem in a relatively low-tech way. Uh, if you drive the New York State Thruway or the Ohio Turnpike, uh, You'll see double 53s operating on the highway every day. Uh, they are less mobile than a single unit uh, truck. Uh, they typically stay in the right lane. They're going 53 miles an hour only because that's as fast as they can go. And uh, they tend to be driven by the most experienced, safest uh, uh, drivers. And uh, think about the notion of doubling uh, a driver's uh, productivity. The problem with double 53s is you can't drive those through uh, downtown Frisco where you would knock over every light pole and fire hydrant. Uh, so you need to have at each interchange a marshaling yard so you can drop that second trailer off, deliver the first one, come back and get the second one. And the real estate planning was not very good uh, because every interchange, you know, has a Waffle House and a Cracker Barrel country store and a couple of gas stations and uh, there's really no room for a marshalling yard. Uh, so we didn't really plan very well there. We didn't have a, 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 a good strategy uh, coming into this period. Uh, there has been talk about double 33s which are advocated by the LTL industry 
an e-commerce industry, which would make uh, each driver more productive. That type of freight that moves in the e-commerce world is very light density freight. So the extra 10 feet of freight carrying capacity on double 33s is very powerful. But there's a, a faction of the truckload industry that has said, you know what, we have this huge investment in 53s. We really don't want to make the conversion over to 33s because we want earn a return on that incremental investment. We'll have to give all the productivity benefits over to the shipper. Um, so it's unclear whether that'll ever move in the right direction. And then there's also the issue of heavier weights, maybe going with three axles on a semi-trailer to get more productivity out of that freight that weighs out rather than cubes out. And of course the railroads uh, vehemently oppose that because you're starting to get into their area of hauling lower valued, higher density uh, commodities. So it, it really kind of looks to me like we're going to be stuck uh, with this driver problem for the foreseeable future, especially in a world where e-commerce is draining people off and the shared economy is, is draining people off to drive for Uber, drive for Lyft, drive for Amazon uh, Flex uh, to do deliveries since uh, none of us have time to uh, drive to the store, hunt for a parking spot, find out they don't have the item we're shopping for in, in the store, go to the next store. It's burning up a lot of resources. It's, a, it's much more efficient to have an optimized route delivery person, even if they're using their own car, doing the delivery. And, and there are many Uber people that make as much money as a truck driver would, especially after expenses. In the state of Texas, uh, this is my last thought on this, you go west uh, to the Permian Basin and you want to make $120,000, $130,000 driving a water truck or a sand truck, you can do that. But maybe you don't want to live in Midland, Odessa, but you know, it can't be all that bad. It's America. You know, the, the worst cities in America are better than the best cities in a lot of countries. So this, this capacity thing, I think, is, is going to be with us for a while. And uh, the, the economy itself may turn down. And I think if we do have excess capacity, it's going to be a function of the Fed overcorrecting or some other cyclical driver of uh, a slowdown in the economy like we went through very recently here in uh, 15 and 16. I think everybody uh, felt that. So uh, here we are. Uh, things are great. And uh, I don't think the political mechanisms in Washington are going to really change uh, any of that very much. Uh, so it's, it's time to make hay. And uh, interestingly on Wall Street, there are six or seven asset-like companies uh, that are for sale right now. And, you know, given uh, the number of private equity firms in the market and uh, the number of strategic buyers that would like to buy more asset light operations, uh, the winner of those auctions almost always overpays for, for the company. And uh, it'll just be interesting to see how that all plays out over time. It's, it's a pretty frothy world out there right now, uh, particularly in the asset light uh, space. Well, so the, uh, the theme I keep hearing is make a now while you can and, and uh, be careful to move forward here. But uh, So something that ties to that in the economy uh, is energy. If we could maybe go with this one, 
a little more quickly uh, in terms of timing, because there's some other great questions we have and topics, is what's the outlook on energy and uh, diesel pricing? So we've seen some change, fairly significant year over year. And Jeff, your thoughts on this? Um, well, I can the impact to the, to the industry. I can help you uh, move things along because that's not my specialty. I, I can't tell you where it's going to be. Um, I just, uh, you know, I'm appreciative that the industry has a way of digesting uh, with uh, with fuel surcharges, and we've uh, <coughs> been able to, to keep carriers in business uh, with the utilization. Of so I'll pass on to the, the folks who study that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm doing some work on this right now, and. It, there are two, two contradictory messages, as usual. Some people say the price is going up, and some people say the price is going down, and I agree. Uh, <coughs> I'm an economist, but uh, the, the underlying fundamentals are very solid. Uh, they don't support $2.25 diesel, but they, they don't support $4 diesel either, unless you're in California. And so the medium-term outlook um, on trend sustained is... Uh, up a little bit, but not a lot. Uh, having said that, I also said today that this happens. And there's plenty of precedent that we can have an overreaction to the little uptick we have now. And that's so sometime late this year, we could have um, $4 diesel for a short time. Uh, uh, it's just the nature of these things to overshoot and undershoot. So it's not something you have to worry about fundamentally, but you got to be careful in the short term to get your fuel surcharges uh, uh, in response to the un, to the necessary um, instability of a market like that. John? Yeah, when we saw oil get down into the $20 per barrel range here uh, a number of years ago, uh, OPEC tried really hard to put the kibosh on the hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling business, and it turns out that didn't work, uh, maybe because the, the people that had made those investments realized that maybe OPEC would blink first, and, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, all the while, the hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling process was refined, and, and the break-even point for that uh, kept dropping. So once you got into the mid 30s to you know low 40s range, all of a sudden Permian Basin out in West Texas is uh, economic. And now that we're in the 60 plus dollar uh, per barrel range, uh, a lot of the shales are uh, uh, economic, including the Alberta tar sands, which have been kind of in. Uh, a state of suspended animation. You may have read it about how the two Canadian railroads have really been struggling to sort of spool up enough capacity to deal with all the traffic that's been generated by the, the re-energization of, of the Alberta oil sands. So, but what happens is the price of oil goes up, you get more production, and uh, you oversupply the market and the price goes down. Uh, the question is what is the range going to be? And it, it seems to me the range is probably you know, something like 40 to 70, <coughs> somewhere in that, that kind of world uh, where there is ample supply uh, coming out of, out of the shales here in the U.S. And uh, that shale technology has also stimulated 180 
billion dollars of investment in our nation's petrochemical uh, industry, a lot of which is along the Gulf Coast. And there's a lot of transportation activity generated during the construction of all those facilities. Um, there's one uh, facility that I uh, cite that I've seen a couple of times here in the last few years up in Monaca, Pennsylvania, where Shell is building an ethylene cracker right on top of the Marcellus. Uh, shale, <coughs> it's right on the, the banks of the Ohio River. You've got a CSX main line running right through the middle of it, and you've got an interstate interchange right next door. If you had to design the perfect site for a methylene cracker, you, you would design this site in Monaca. A uh, lot of freight moving in and out of there. I spoke to a guy who runs a flatbed carrier just down the road there, and he said it's, it's been the, the biggest project he's ever seen in 40 years of uh, trucking. So we're starting to see investment in America. The tax bill's helping. That drives more volume uh, through the system. That puts more stress uh, on the system. And, uh, you know, make hay while, while the hay is ready to be harvested. Just a, a factoid. About 10% of American trucking is in the oil business, mainly moving water. So 300 to 400,000 truckers. Quite a, quite a few moving sand as well. Yeah, two includes. Okay, sand and water. And then the oil that comes out of the well often gets moved to the railhead and the pipeline head.